Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Lex Greensill, founder and CEO of Greensill Capital, a leading provider of working capital finance solutions for businesses and individuals around the world. Founded in 2011, Greensill provides supply chain finance to customers around the globe and works with a host of banks and institutional investors to provide multiple funding streams for their clients. The company is headquartered in London with offices in New York, Chicago, Miami, Frankfurt, Bremen, and Sydney, with close to 1,000 employees worldwide. Greensill has raised close to $1.3 billion in equity from some of the most prestigious funds in the industry, including SoftBank and General Atlantic, and is ranked as the largest fintech in the UK. Before launching Greensill Capital, Lex established and led Morgan Stanley's global supply chain finance team and successfully developed supply chain finance practices for Citigroup. He is a former senior advisor to and a crown representative of the UK government on supply chain finance. And now please join me in a fascinating conversation with Lex Greensill. Lex, thank you for joining us on the Wharton FinTech podcast. We are extremely excited to have you here join us all the way from uh, the UK, I assume. Uh, can we start by hearing a little bit about yourself uh, and your personal background? Certainly, well, Miguel, it's a real privilege to, uh, to be able to uh, uh, address you and uh, uh, all of your listeners today. So thank you for the uh, opportunity. In terms of my story, I, uh, I come from a farming family in country Queensland in Australia. It's been a, uh, a long and interesting journey to get from starting in the, uh, the red soil of Bundaberg to running a fintech that serves millions of customers around the world now. It's certainly been a, a fascinating journey and, uh, and one I'd be delighted to share with you. Fantastic. fantastic. So Lex, tell us a little bit about your career. So prior to launching Greensill, you spent some time at some very large banks, very large institutions, uh, Morgan Stanley, Citi. Tell us how your roles within those two banks influenced your career and your decision to live. Sure. Well, the story of our business, Miguel, uh, kind of starts a bit further back than, uh, than those big banks. So uh, perhaps it's worth me kind of maybe taking you back to the beginning of the story because, in fact, the, the big bank piece maybe doesn't make sense without that backstory. So I left school in 1993, and at the time, the markets for uh, fruit and vegetables in, in Australia were, uh, were doing it tough. The, uh, the weather was against my parents, and so it was a difficult time, and that was exacerbated by the fact that they were not getting paid in a timely way by the folks that they were selling their cantaloupes to. And that meant that I made the difficult, although I think now it's a good decision, but I made the difficult decision to not go on to university, but instead to work in a local law firm as a clerk. And I did night school and uh, eventually I uh, earned my law degree and was, uh, was admitted as a, uh, as a solicitor. But that experience meant that while I was training to be a lawyer, I helped to restructure the way that farmers in, in Queensland and then ultimately Australia did business with retailers and merchants to give them a fair deal, basically, to ensure that everybody dealt 
on a common set of standards, and those included the timeliness of payment. So that really was the, the cornerstone. And having got that foundation built, and that's ultimately been um, enshrined in, in legislation, having built that, of course, it's one thing to have certainty about when you're going to get paid. It's quite another to actually get paid. And as a kind of working capital cycle, farming is a really difficult business. You know, normally when you make some, some goods in a factory, you sell them to someone else and you get paid in you know, 30 to 90 days later for those goods. In farming, of course, that time period is much, much longer because you've got to grow the crop and then you've got to wait for someone to, uh, to pay you for it. So it's a, it's a difficult business from a working capital uh, perspective. And, and so I guess from that perspective, I wanted to fix the actual flow of cash. And so once I qualified, I worked in a, in a startup company in Australia that was doing what we would now call supply chain finance. Wasn't called that then. Um, that company actually ultimately failed. It went bankrupt. And I uh, went and worked in another startup business, um, which ultimately we sold very well. But when I did my MBA in, in the UK, ultimately, um, I went back and I wanted to focus on this business and figure out why this business hadn't succeeded because I felt there was a real need for supply chains to work better from a financial perspective. And so I spent my time doing my MBA focused on that. And that then led me to join Morgan Stanley, where um, some other colleagues from my, uh, my class in business school and I built out a supply chain finance business at Morgan Stanley, which was really a, a pioneer in the, in the space and grew that business. Morgan Stanley became a, perhaps a, a slightly more difficult place to, uh, to, to work during the financial crisis. Uh, they needed to get smaller. Our business was getting bigger. And we ultimately decided to, uh, to move to, to City, where the firm was very focused on trade finance and wanted to really build out its supply chain financing practice. I think, uh, as you said, uh, Miguel, uh, you, in fact, did, a, uh, did some time working in, in that business. And uh, it's, a, it's a remarkable organization. And I, I really enjoyed my, my time there. But I recognise that big institutions can't necessarily adopt technology at pace and the world isn't going to wait around for banks to figure everything out. There have been many examples in, I'm sure, many of the fintechs that, uh, that you've interviewed over the time. And so I decided that I thought I could do it better. And uh, I left Citibank and started Greensill back in 2011. We're closing in now on our uh, our 10th birthday. Uh, it's been an extraordinary journey, and certainly uh, uh, ones with lots of ups and downs and ups in the uh, in the process is always the case when building an enterprise. That's certainly very exciting, uh, and it's interesting because I, I read that you actually started Greensill going back to your roots, right? Serving those Australian farmers that you know basically reflect your family business right so exactly so it's been almost 10 years now you have millions of customers you serve 165 countries you're the largest fintech in the uk one of the largest in europe take us through the initial days the evolution those first months those first couple of years of greensill certainly um well look you're exactly right the company is, in fact, to this day, still registered in 
Bundaberg in Queensland, my hometown. So despite being a significant fintech, it's still registered to a farm address. And I certainly hope it always will be. And you're right, our first customers were farmers. And we focused actually on the very area where I first started, which was helping farmers to get paid immediately as their crops basically left their packing sheds on the on the way to, to retailers and uh, wholesalers. And so that's where we started. And in fact, I'll be honest with you, I didn't really think when I left Citibank that you know, big multinational companies and governments would ever want to do business with our firm because we were small and nobody had ever heard of us. And so we set our aspirations, to be honest with you, relatively small. We knew that there was an opportunity to work with smaller businesses, particularly in agriculture, where, in fact, you know, there wasn't a lot of attention on those supply chains and, and helping to make those more efficient. And so that was really where we, we started. And to be honest with you, Miguel, we were we were surprised that over the you know the subsequent nearly decade has been how we've been able to grow where we continue to serve small businesses, um, but many of our clients are uh, are ever bigger. And that journey's been a, a fascinating one. It's you know one where you you know you start out serving perhaps businesses that are they're, they're smaller, they're harder work, they're kind of less well-known companies and, you know, you uh, you kind of keep building on that. And, you know, today we're, we're very proud of uh, hundreds of customers that uh, we've built up and their supply chains, which in turn means that we serve millions of customers now in, uh, in fact, 175 countries. Last year, we, uh, we provided over $140 billion worth of credit to businesses in all those countries. So it's been a remarkable journey and you know being very honest with you i certainly didn't think that we were going to come this far when i when i set out on the journey and being honest with you i think if my wife was on the the podcast she would tell you that she's been thoroughly misled as i told her that when i left Citibank, that uh, i was going to have much better work-life balance i'd be at home way more and i'd be there for our children and turns out that uh, maybe that wasn't quite as accurate as i thought it might be but it's been an extraordinary journey and I think one of the things that's been great about it, I'm sure we want to talk more about it, is the fact that we've really been able to build a business that despite it now having more than a thousand of us in the company, it continues to this day to feel like a family business where you know, everybody who works in our company is part of the family. We are all shareholders in the company. And I think that changes the way a firm grows and develops um, because it, it keeps that kind of core that binds us all uh, all together. Truly really a fascinating journey. And you've built such a large business, but of course you don't build it on your own. You've partnered with several companies along the way. How did you establish those initial partnerships? Sure. I mean, we uh, absolutely have built our, our business on the back of partnerships, largely because we recognized that we weren't great at everything. And, uh, and so we wanted to team up with, with people who did have the expertise and the ability to deliver all of the pieces of the puzzle. And I think that's one of the kind of interesting things about being able to build a business today, as opposed to perhaps maybe starting a business 20, 30, 40 years ago, where today you can absolutely go and, as it were, either partner or buy to get all of the pieces, you don't need to build it all yourself. So in our case, for us, we didn't have the, when we started, the infrastructure 
to be able to, to issue bonds, to make payments, to create trusts and securities for our investors. And so we actually went back to my old employer in Citibank, who to this day is actually kind of our biggest service provider, um, provides us with access to, to its infrastructure to, to be able to do that. Um, we also use Morgan Stanley, who is a, obviously also a previous employer, who look after um, the, um, the, the dealing of our securities. We're one of the biggest issuers of, uh, of securities in the world, certainly uh, the biggest non-bank in, uh, in Europe. And so those partnerships have been great. But we also recognised on the technology side that there were firms that had invested billions of dollars in creating technology to be able to support supply chains. But most of those companies had never kind of thought about providing finance. And indeed, they don't want to or can't because they don't want to be regulated. They don't want to be exposed to, uh, uh, to credit risk. But yet, their rails, so to speak, um, were handling you know, billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars of transactions. And so consequently, the idea of sort of joining forces um, to deliver something that neither Greensill nor a technology company could deliver in isolation to kind of create more value for both companies and provide a, a new service and to share the resulting kind of economics was something that certainly banks would have found you know, incredibly kind of weird to uh, to do where they want to kind of control everything themselves. And yet, so we were able to, to kind of bring that uh, that new kind of solution to the market. And, and that really powered our early growth because the truth was those companies either had products and tools that we didn't have or they had customers that we didn't have and technology that we didn't have. So we were able to, to bring all of that together. And I think that uh, that enabled us to really leapfrog in terms of the growth and the trajectory of our business model. Uh, Lex, I have been following Greensill for a while. And something that I've always admired is how you have managed to attract some of the best talent uh, in the industry and, and many of them coming from large institutions, right? Why do you think so many great people have gravitated to Greensill. And, and, you know, I think related to that is what kind of company culture will they find once they join? Sure. In our business, as I suspect in a great many fintechs, our ability to grow, to execute, and to innovate is absolutely rooted in the human capital that we have as a business. And I think that what we've aimed to do is to create a family culture in our business that encourages people to act as owners and to go and to improve, constantly ask questions um, and think about how we can do everything better than was done yesterday. Sort of treat the market essentially as a great puzzle for us to solve and uh, think about how we can solve that puzzle in the fewest number of moves in order to be able to deliver. But I think at the heart of it, we took a decision early on that everybody who worked in the company would be a shareholder. And I think that has been a very important thing. I think it's less common in financial services. And when I say everybody, I mean literally everybody, you know, including the, uh, the lady who cleans my office in London. I mean, literally everybody's a shareholder. And then we also have a company-wide single bonus pool 
where everybody, including our cleaning staff, they all participate in the economic upside of the business. So equity plus a plus a, a bonus pool based on the, the overall results of the firm. And what that does is it means that we're all pulling in the same direction. You know, we are all owners. And I think that culture of working as a team and being owners, but where we can all see the North Star of where we're going, our mission is to make finance fairer. That's something that people want to buy into. And I think one of the things you may have seen is you know, not only are we providing solutions for businesses to help uh, businesses access their cash faster, but we've branched out recently to do the same thing for workers so that workers can get paid daily and to get paid daily using an app and to have the benefit of that completely free of charge. And that's using the same rails that we do in the rest of our business obviously a slightly different front end that sits on the front of that. But our employees feel like, as I do, which is that we're genuinely actually helping to change the way that you know, finance works, the way that cash flows in an economy work. And I think that is, you know, it's inspiring. It's worth bouncing out of bed in the morning because we're actually helping to make the, uh, the global economy kind of work a little bit better and we feel like we're making you know a, a real contribution to that and I think that is at the heart of why the team feel like we're doing something great and, and perhaps that's why you know we've been able to attract such amazing people because I think people do want to make a difference they want to be part of uh, something that is leaving a better world behind and that's frankly, a, a harder thing to achieve in many organisations today than it once was. So I think people are hungering for that. And so I, I think that's been one of our real secrets. So you've had some impressive organic growth, but Lex, you're also not afraid to be acquisitive from the Nord Finance Bank acquisition in Germany to your most recent acquisition of Omni in Colombia, Latin America. This is certainly a, an aggressive strategy that is clearly working for you. Can you talk a little bit more about your strategy for Latin America and the Omni acquisition? Certainly. I would say that uh, I wouldn't describe our acquisitions as, uh, as aggressive. I would describe them as, uh, as steady. We've been around nine and a bit uh, years, and uh, in that time, we've made four acquisitions. So uh, I'm not quite sure we're sort of quite in the league of uh, M&A champions yet. Fair point. But, but I, think, I think what we've aimed to do is to make acquisitions where we've found talent skills and technology that we didn't have in-house that we felt kind of helped to, to complete the, uh, the picture. And the, uh, the truth is that Latin America accounted for a, a single digit percentage of our activity globally last year. And we know that there are real opportunities there, but we also recognize that the technology that's needed in Latin America is actually different to what we need in many of our other markets. And one needs the local talent. You need to understand the, uh, uh, the local market. It's no good me sitting in London thinking that I know how the market in Bogota works. So, and so consequently, we, uh, through the acquisition of Omni, we've been able to find an amazing team with really market-leading technology that we think means that we can extend 
further in uh, Latin America markets. And uh, we're very excited about that. But we'll also kind of bring with that our funding capability that we've deployed on a, on a global scale. And in addition to that, actually some of our other technologies, such as our earned technology, the daily pay product, where we think that will really make a fantastic positive impact in the market in Latin America, given that payment practice in Latin America is, is often one where, uh, where employees have to wait a month to get paid. And so I think it's that nexus where we've brought together great people and technology into the family fold. And so we're, we're very, very excited about the, uh, about the region. We've got uh, a significant number of customers in the, in the region already today, but uh, we think there's so much more for us to, uh, uh, to do. And there's also many other markets where we feel there's still much to do. Many of the other uh, markets that we've cracked to date have been ones that are relatively open. And uh, there's a number of very significant markets where we've, where we've had to kind of fully localize in order to be able to, uh, to serve those markets. Uh, China being a good example where we were one of the first institutions to, uh, to receive a factoring license to, to, to buy receivables uh, in China in, uh, in the last three years. And uh, in fact, we got our license kind of during the, the Chinese COVID outbreak in, uh, in January, which was, um, we, we were surprised when that happened and, uh, and we're really growing out our, our franchise there. And similarly, there's a number of other big markets where we see great opportunities, but where you know, we, we can't do that cross-border. We need to have that local capability, the local regulation and deliver. So it's uh, exciting times. And you know, our, our market share globally, Miguel, just to, to kind of give you a sense, our market share still less than 10 basis points out of the entire market. And so, yes, we provided a lot of finance last year and we're providing even more finance this year to, uh, to businesses. But the bottom line is that uh, there's an enormous opportunity to go at um, the provision of supply chain financing on a, on a global basis is incredibly fragmented today. And that in and of itself creates a, an amazing opportunity to continue to, uh, to deliver our services to different companies around the world. Certainly exciting times ahead. As you scale and become increasingly more global every day, what would you say are your biggest challenges? I think the truth is I became the chief executive simply because I was the guy that was crazy enough to, uh, to give up my job and, and go and start the, uh, the business. When we started, there were two of us. Uh, today, there's more than a thousand of us. Um, so one of the tough things for, for me has been that journey of kind of not only kind of growing the business, but actually growing as a, as a person, as a leader, as a manager, because it's very different uh, complexion to where basically you do have to do everything yourself through to today, very different organizations. So it's been a, a really interesting arc for me, I've been able to, to manage that because I've got a, a fantastic board and set of advisors that, uh, that sit around me, most of whom have, have had very significant leadership roles in the past. And so they've been kind of great mentors to, uh, to me and in helping me to, to kind of grow through that arc, which is a, an interesting experience. But the leadership team that we've built up uh, is, a, is a team of the most extraordinary talents and uh, you know, quite a number of them have been with us since we started the company, but we've continued, as you, uh, as you noted, to, uh, to add amazing talent uh, along the way. And that's really kind of given us the, 
the bench strength uh, to be able to deliver. But I think the, the real secret is, as I mentioned before, it's the fact that all of the thousand folks who, uh, are, who work in our firm, they're all owners. We all think like owners, we all act like owners, and owners act in a very different way to the way that simply employees act. And I think that is, uh, has been a real kind of thing that separated us from the, uh, the, the folks that we compete with in the, uh, in the market and has given us a genuine edge. Like talking a little bit about the COVID-19 crisis that we're definitely going through, how has the company culture, have you reacted internally? And also how has it affected your clients? Sure. Well, look, uh, none of us knows quite how the, uh, the COVID story is, is going to play out. Uh, the, uh, it's clearly uh, an evolving beast and, and does feel like it's going to be with us for an extended period of time and the scars that it, uh, it wreaks are, are certainly going to be uh, significant and felt for, for many, 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 many years to, uh, uh, to come. I think for us, like a great many firms, we uh, prided ourselves on the fact that we had a business continuity plan which meant that uh, if something happened, we could uh, we could relocate to a different site and continue to serve our customers. The truth was us, and I, I suspect there were other businesses like us, that if we obviously didn't have a business continuity plan that assumed that every one of our staff would uh, would go from working in the office to, to working from home. And so it's a real tribute to the, uh, the amazing team that we've got that at a time when our volumes, you know, year on year had increased, more than 100% and there's a spike in activity because obviously when there's a crisis, what does everybody want? They just want cash. And so we saw that, but at the same time, we transitioned almost overnight from a, you know, everybody in the office to, to a, a work from home environment and at the same time maintained the scale, scope and uh, an execution for our, our, our clients. So that was an amazing kind of uh, transformation that was you know, executed in record time. In terms of the impact, we really look at the at the world, I guess, through a couple of prisms. We look at the world through the prism of the small businesses that kind of we serve, and you know those folks need cash ever more, and they need it faster. And uh, the demand there has been, you know, acute, and it's been growing, and uh, and that's obviously been great news for our business. Um, we also obviously serve an ever-growing pool of employees who work in companies that are our, our customers who now feel much more financially fragile perhaps than they did uh, before. And so for whom the opportunity to be able to simply get paid every day for wages that they've earned, but maybe don't get paid for another one, two, three, four weeks time, that ability to get that every day is a source of significant comfort. And we're very, very proud that, for example, here in the United Kingdom, the, the National Health Service of the country has been rolling uh, this product out to, uh, to the, the amazing kind of nurses and janitors, doctors in the, uh, in the health system here in the UK. And we've provided that you know, completely gratis to the National Health Service and something we're obviously delighted about and, and, and thrilled about. So we've seen change in the circumstances of those businesses. At the same time, the capital markets are changing. You know, we, our balance sheet is not big enough to fund all of the activity that we undertake. And so 
we buy and we sell uh, receivables on a, on a daily basis um, in very, very significant volumes. And so the market into which we sell has been one that's evolving and changing as kind of different markets, different investors have got different views. And we also now see the impact of the, over time with rates having come down, we're actually seeing a change in the macro view of investors who traditionally maybe have not kind of thought about participating in a trade finance asset class um, because it's been it's quite short duration, meaning you know we uh, we're buying invoices, they turn back into cash very quickly, and so many you know, pension funds and, and and others would say, well, I'm not really that interested in buying kind of short duration assets because actually liabilities are very, very long duration because my members are going to retire in 20 or 30 years time. So I don't need to buy a, why would I want to buy a a 45 day asset? But in a world where the yield curve has, has flattened, suddenly the risk to long duration investors is that that yield curve is going to go back up. And when the yield curve's been essentially at zero and it goes back up, which it must at some point in the future, I'm not going to endeavor to predict when that might happen. But if you've bought long duration assets and that yield curve goes back up, a rise in yield has an inverse impact on the the price of the bond. So the price of the bond will, uh, will, will come down. And so what we're seeing is investors saying, you know what, although I've got liabilities that are longer duration, I'd actually rather own these shorter duration self-liquidating assets that are linked to the real economy and use to to invest in those uh, for the the future rather than take the risk of potentially making a significant capital loss when at some point in the future interest rates normalise. And so there's been some really fascinating changes on each side of our business and at the same time we're seeing inexorable kind of additional investment in technology to do everything kind of faster, more efficiently, and in a uh, where we use more and more data to, to predict the uh, the future. And I think that's also the other thing that's changing. One of the things we shared with the world a couple of weeks ago was that we've created, together with the health service in the UK, an algorithm that allows us to forecast the drugs that are going to be prescribed in every pharmacy in England such that pharmacists can actually get paid before they even dispense the drugs because of the the robust nature of the intellectual property that we've developed and the AI that sits behind that um, to, uh, to make sure that we can actually deliver capital to the economy just as it's needed. And if you think about it, the the pharmaceutical supply chain is is one that's just so much more important kind of during a COVID crisis. And so, you know, we're thrilled that in a very, very small way, you know, our AI is is helping to lubricate and and, and make sure that the drug supply chains here in uh, the United Kingdom are are working as efficiently as they possibly can and capital is in no way holding up the the delivery of drugs to uh, to mums and dads across the country. That's fascinating. And it's interesting that demand for your asset class has increased at a time where this liquidity is very much needed uh, in the real economy, right? Uh, This is the time where they actually need supply chain financing, right? So you're actually taking a different approach than a lot of banks, which is they're actually cutting back 
under credit lines, uh, whereas in fact you've been able to do the opposite. Sure, and and I think the key there is having the best insight into to what's going on in the world, and that real time access to data, our artificial intelligence means that we think we have better information and sooner than others that enable us to make better decisions. And of course, we've been able to, through labor of a very, very long time, we've been able to build up a very impressive syndicate function that enables us to to access capital from balance sheets in every corner of the globe. And that's enabled us to respond to the demand and make sure that that, uh, that, that supply of, uh, of, of capital is able to, uh, to keep up. That's by no means to suggest that we're perfect or that we've got it all figured out. Uh, the nature of any, uh, any uh, business is that uh, we're, we're always looking to improve, um, to do better. But you know, we're, we're delighted that we've been able to increase the supply of capital to, uh, to those who need it uh, in, in, frankly, a, a time of great need. Uh, and, uh, and that really is fulfilling for, for me and for all of the team and the company. Lex, how about the road ahead? How do you envision the future of Greensill and how has it been affected? How have your plans for the future been affected uh, by you know, the pandemic that we're living today? Sure. I, I think that uh, many people will probably tell you that uh, I think COVID has accelerated trends that were already in the, in, in the market. And so we've never seen the level of demand, interest, new clients that, that we have in the past three or four months. It's humbling and it's exciting. In terms of what the future holds, you know, it's interesting. Our, our economies are being propped up at the moment uh, by a combination of handouts from governments and lots more credit. And at some point, both of those have to unwind. And actually, what we've been focusing on is how can we play a role in kind of making sure that both the liquidity is there as, as people need it, but, but in the future, I actually wonder whether that kind of pulling back of credit is going to reflect itself in changing practices at a bunch of levels. And let's just use as a, as a simple example, you know, what we do with our earned product. So we, we allow people to get paid every day. Well, if you think about it, in most people's lives, um, there's a significant element of credit that's embedded in just living your life. Quite, ignore your, you know, your mortgage for, for a moment, but you know, your mobile phone provider provides you with credit. Your gas company provides you with credit. The company that gives you insurance on your car to the extent you have one or your bicycle or uh, whatever, um, they give you credit terms. They let you pay for it uh, over time. And so everything that we do, almost without thinking about it, there's credit terms associated with it. And of course, when you have a job, you give credit to your employer and they pay you, you know, in arrears long after you've actually done the work for them. What I think is with technology, actually, all of those elements of credit can be brought sooner and they can be matched off against each other on a daily basis. So if you can get paid every day, why wouldn't you pay your bills every day and get a better deal because you don't then need that extension of credit? So I think with technology, we can actually rethink the way that the economy works. And in a sense, that's what we've done in the pharmacy system here in the UK, we've been able to rethink the way that works. So pharmacies have the cash, 
they can pay for the drugs sooner, get a better price, which means the taxpayer gets a better deal in the, uh, in the country. And we do that with, with SMEs in so many countries around the world as well. So I think actually we can do the, what may seem to be the antithesis of a, of a fintech, which might, you might think is all about let's extend more and more credit in a way. Actually, we can use our rails potentially to serve more folks, but maybe there's actually less credit being extended. And I think that may well be a good thing for, for our economy in a post-COVID world. But obviously, uh, let's see. Exciting. Lex, you have a unique point of view because you've been a senior leader at large banks and now you've been an entrepreneur for close to a decade. We have a lot of listeners who are either founders or aspiring entrepreneurs. I'm sure that we'd love to hear some of your reflections and some of your thoughts around entrepreneurship and taking the leap to actually launch something. Look, uh, I would say having a job in many respects is great. You have the certainty that there's going to be a paycheck kind of turn up uh, every month or maybe every two weeks. And that gives a certain kind of comfort and solidity to life. Maybe people feel a little less confident about that in a, in a post-COVID world. But as an entrepreneur, you kind of throw away lots of the certainty that you had before and you trade that for the excitement, the adrenaline rush to a certain extent of being part of creating something new. You know, my, my mother used to point out to me that, uh, you know, I loved being, building Lego, but once it was built, kind of I'd want to pull it apart and build something else. And if you love building, then being an entrepreneur is great. And as I mentioned uh, earlier, there's never been a time where you can essentially buy in the pieces that it need, you, you need to deliver a company in the way that you can today. So, you know, the time now to build a company at this time it's an extraordinary time to, uh, to, to be able to do that where the barriers are the lowest, I think, that they've ever been. But I, I think you, you do have to recognise that when you're an entrepreneur, it doesn't all go in a straight line. There's lots of bumps in the, in the, in the road. And to a certain extent, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, it's something that's with you 24-7. It's never kind of, you're never completely without it. And so, you know, in a way... When I used to be an employee, there was a time where you kind of turned off and you were done. But as an entrepreneur, you're kind of always on. And if that's something that doesn't sit well with you, then kind of uh, then maybe it's not for you. But I, I would say to people, I think everybody should have a crack at being an entrepreneur, whether that's to work in a firm that lets you behave as an entrepreneur or whether that's to start something new or team up with people to, uh, to start something new. I think it's, uh, it's an extraordinary experience that I think that really does kind of help you to grow and, uh, and advance as a, as a person. And I think the, the thing to remember as an entrepreneur is it's ultimately about executing the vision. And so it's important to have the vision, but it's even more important to be able to execute it. And so that has to be the focus. You can't just dream about it. The dreaming is sub 5%. It's the sweat, it's the execution, and it's that absolute determination and dedication to the execution that uh, kind of separates uh, those that, uh, that make it through from those that don't. But I think kind of win, lose, or draw, you know, being an entrepreneur is an extraordinary experience. The, the great thing is that we, most of us, I think, live in a, in a society today where there's, you know, there are safety nets. And so 
there's not that much that far to fall just in the same way that uh, if you uh, are doing some exercise and there's uh, you know the safety mats on the floor you're kind of happy to, uh, to to do a big jump because you know that you won't break your back if you miss the uh, the high bars or, or whatever in the same way I think you know there's so many kind of protections there now that it makes sense to have a go at being an entrepreneur and because of course when you do deliver the excitement of creating something new and and indeed to a certain extent the rewards as well are, are, are you know are just so worthwhile so uh, I would say give it a go but be prepared to accept that it won't all be in a straight line. Alex this has been extremely interesting before we go one last question we like to ask all of our guests and that is how do you spend some of your time outside of Greensill? What are some of your favorite hobbies? Sure. Look, the truth is my brothers and I are farmers. And so if you came to my house on the, on the weekend, you would see me wearing the same clothes my brothers wear on the, on the farm. So high visibility photos, we should give you one for you to, uh, to see what it looks like. So you'll see me wearing that and, and uh, I, I'll simply be working in my garden. I uh, only have a relatively small garden compared to the farms that, uh, that my, my brothers uh, operate for the family. But I, uh, I love nothing more um, than, um, than getting my hands dirty and, uh, and, and growing my own vegetables and, uh, and fruit. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a great diversion um, and it's also great fun to do with your kids too. Love it. Love it. You're the first farmer that we've had on, on the show. Well, Lex, thank you again uh, for taking the time to join us. We know that you're extremely busy, so we do appreciate it. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're excited to see the future of Greensill, as I'm sure uh, it's going to continue doing wonders. And once times are normal, we would also love to have you on, on campus. Fantastic. I'd, I'd welcome the opportunity to come on campus. And thank you so much for the opportunity to address you uh, and all of your listeners. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.